Welcome to another episode of The Herb Walk with Jessica Baker. I'm super excited about today's episode. I interview Dr. Michelle Ross. She's a PhD, an author, neuroscientist, cannabinoid medicine researcher, and health coach. Michelle founded the Endocannabinoid Deficiency Foundation, now called the Impact Network, in 2013. It was the first nonprofit to provide research and advocacy on cannabis for women's health. In 2017, she founded Infused Health, an online platform for cannabis education and health coaching. Dr. Ross also has several books, including Vitamin Weed, a four-step plan to prevent and reverse endocannabinoid deficiency. I really like her book because she talks about combining the power of cannabinoid medicine with personalized nutrition, herbal remedies, and simple lifestyle changes that can transform health and help patients reach their health goals. I am so impressed by Dr. Ross's knowledge of all things cannabis. She can talk about the endocannabinoid system, phytocannabinoids, the interaction between our receptors and what's going on with what we're intaking, be it cannabis or other substances like food and vitamins. She knows cannabis policy. She is making apps and, you know, talking about the back end of her infused health online platform, things that I kind of understand and know about, but the fact that she is the person behind not only doing the health coaching, working on cannabinoid research, working on public policy, writing books, but then she's also creating this entire um, tech company and online platform in infused health. So just kudos to you, Dr. Ross, always impressed by you. Thank you for taking the time out to talk. Please enjoy this episode of The Herb Walk with Jessica Baker. So today we have Dr. Michelle Roche, PhD, author, neuroscientist, cannabinoid medicine researcher, and health coach. Thanks so much for being on the show, Dr. Ross. Well, thank you for having me, Jessica. I love to be able to talk cannabinoid medicine with someone who who gets it and who works with patients and loves them as deeply as I do. So I'm excited to talk. Thank you. And what I didn't say in the intro was that I actually was on a panel with Dr. Ross um, a couple years ago at the Women Grow event here in Denver. We are both on the faculty of the Humboldt, or excuse me, the Holistic Cannabis Academy. And so that's actually when I got to meet you a couple years ago. But since then, you've moved back to California from Denver. Is that correct? Yes, it is. It's sort of funny because I ended up in Colorado, not 100% of my own choice. So a little bit of my background that a lot of people don't know about me. I was a huge cannabis advocate in California. I lived in Los Angeles and I was very mouthy and <laughs> about a lot of just social justice things, um, including the fact that there was a lot of police brutality by the Los Angeles Police Department. There was, you know, nonsense arrests of cannabis advocates because before recreational marijuana was passed, you could actually uh, be arrested just for having a patient. And Having a medical card didn't stop you from getting arrested and going to jail and having to pay thousands of dollars to bail yourself out for cannabis possession in your own home, which is ridiculous. I actually got arrested in my own home for having cannabis as a medical patient, and I ended up having to pay all this bail money. I ended up having to go through a trial 
it was crazy. Um, and I, of course, all the charges were dropped because what I was doing was legal in the state. But after that, I was just like, I don't want to live here anymore. It's not safe for me in the work that I do. And I moved to Colorado because recreational marijuana had passed, um, which meant that no matter what, like nothing would happen to me for being a patient or working with uh, clients. And I moved there, but really my heart was always in California and I always wanted to go back. So after some time of like reestablishing my work and, you know, getting back on my feet after all trauma, both like financially and mentally from that police harassment and case, I came back to California in May. So everything has been beautiful then. It's just great to see what happens when there's full legalization. Like there's a lot less fear, a lot less stigma. And you can just do the work and it's no longer talking to, to patients about, okay, well, you could use this plant, but here's all the bad things that could happen to you. Now it's just use it and get better. Absolutely. I mean, I remember back when I got my first medical recommendation from Dr. Todd Micaria, and it was like a big mm-hmm. deal that he was writing medical cannabis recommendations. I mean, he was like in threat of losing his license all the time and mm-hmm. it was like all hush hush and scary and secret. And now, I mean, yeah, to see it like literally in the news every single day and everybody's grandma's asking about it and, you know, everyone wants CBD. It's definitely interesting what's changed over just the course of a few years, really. Yeah, I mean, it, I left California at the end of 2014. So here we are in 2019, a little less than five years um, after I left. And it, the market is so different. And it's Instead of doctors, you know, telling you that you are in a fake field of medicine, they're all going, well, I don't know anything about this and I feel stupid. So please help me. The same people that were telling me (laughs) I was an idiot five years ago are like asking me for help now. So it's definitely a really exciting time. And there's also so much happening too um, with the science. So before a lot of practitioners had to sort of hide in the dark. You know, because it was very gray area, you know, there was a lot of stigma. People could call the police on you for no reason. And now because it's so legal, now we're able to work with technology companies. We're able to work with companies, you know, form, like optimizing formulations. It's just a really exciting time to be in this. And it's just sort of funny. I think that all the other clinicians that are just waking up to this are a little behind the ball because, of course, like there's been a lot of natural practitioners doing this for 20 years. So, you know, they think that they're like onto something new, but it's been around, you know, cannabinoid medicine has been around for thousands of years and it's been around in California, you know, legally medical marijuana was legalized in 1996. So, I mean, it's, it's been here for a bit. It's definitely been here for a bit. And, you know, it was like, everyone's like, well, why did, why did California take so long to legalize when they were the first to have medical? And it was like, because people like you were traumatized for years because they still treated you like a criminal because we were the first ones to have it. So yeah, it's great to see the doctors fall on board too. In my opinion, doctors tend to be a little behind on most things, you know, because they're mm-hmm. just, you know, they're trained to give pills and not really to think for themselves. So um, it's really good to see that, you know, the more doctors and neuroscientists and researchers that we have that want to study it and are excited about it, then we're just going to see like leaps and bounds in the field of cannabinoid science, right? Exactly. And, you know, it's sort of funny because people would ask me what I did with my day. You know, I ran a nonprofit uh, for Cannabis Women's Health. It was originally called the Endocannabinoid Deficiency Foundation when I founded it here in California. But it was just funny because 90% of my time was actually spent on 
advocacy efforts, trying to pass bills that protect patients or trying to defend against bills that were taking away medical marijuana patient rights or trying to legalize in different states, you know, protecting moms from going to jail for breastfeeding with CBD in their breast milk. It's like, you know, ridiculous things where I couldn't really focus on the science, even though I'm so science heavy. And that's really where my passion is. And so now with legalization happening in more and more states and countries like Canada, 100% legalizing, I can finally stop like fighting really like for things that should already be legal and instead actually work on the science. So that's where I am right now um, with my company, Infused Health. Uh, I actually have a technology platform that provides telehealth um, cannabis consultations. And we also take as much data before uh, patients come in and after they're done with our program to actually be able to show that the cannabinoid medicine treatments that we're suggesting are actually helpful and actually work to, for whatever goal that they're looking for, whether it's reducing their anxiety, whether it's reducing chronic pain or, you know, helping them with weight loss, et cetera. And it's just really fun to be here in California versus Colorado. I love Colorado. There's a lot of novel products out there. Um, the California market, because it's been here for so long, there's a lot of strains and a lot of products that just don't exist in any of the other states. And so there's so much more variety to be able to use when you're trying to do custom personalized medicine. Like it was so hard when I try to talk with clients that are in other states and you're like, well, these products aren't available, so you're going to have to make them yourself. And it's a little bit more of a difficult conversation than in California. There are things from there are like tablets that you can put on your tongue that are every single cannabinoid, like THCV or THCA or CBG. They make all these different isolated cannabinoids to put under your tongue. So you know, we have products here that aren't available anywhere else in the United States. And we're sort of, you know, spoiled in that regard. But we also don't have the science behind knowing, you know, what does it mean to take three milligrams of CBG plus, you know, 10 milligrams of THCV? What does that actually mean? What does that do to a person? <laughs> you know, we, these products are here, but we still don't even really know what they do and how we can use them best in treatment protocol. So it's an exciting time for what I do. Yeah, it's definitely, I feel like it's an exciting time for like everybody who's into cannabis in one way or another, just because of the endless opportunities that we have. I mean, I kind of mm -hmm. agree with you, although it's not a popular opinion. I prefer California in pretty much every shape or form <laughs> over Colorado. <laughs> um, but that's because I don't like dry weather and high altitude. I'm really like a water person. But what? But there's a level of sophistication in the California market that I don't think other states, including Colorado, have. I mean, here, you know, you walk into a dispensary and just the level of what somebody wants out of a product, I think is kind of... I, th I just think the standard is a little higher in California and there's an elevated sense of what we want to put in our body. And also mm -hmm. we are, we're pretty picky and we want to know that the strain that we think it is, is what it actually is, as opposed to Colorado where there's just made up names everywhere. And you're like, hmm, that's not really <laughs> telling me what I want to hear. But let's go back to the research just for a minute. The endogenous cannabinoid research has been going on for you know, 30, 40 years, we're just now really hearing about it. As a researcher, what direction do you feel like the research is taking? Like, you know, we hear about THC and CBD, and you mentioned like CBG, and people are like, are kind of talking about the lesser known cannabinoids. Um, but, you know, where, where are you hearing the, the buzz be about on like what the, where the research is going to take us next in terms of learning more about these phytocannabinoids? So I think 
Right now in clinical trials, there's been a big focus on validating CBD and other cannabinoids for uh, epilepsy. So I mean, Epidiolex was approved. It was based off of efficacy for seizures, um, as well as they had an application for brain cancer. I think that cancer is really going to be the next thing that pops up in a lot of clinical trials. And we're already starting to see that, for example, Mara Gordon's company, um, Zelda Therapeutics, has a breast cancer study that's happening in New Zealand. Um, Of course, it's still very difficult for these studies to happen in the United States just because they can't really study the products that are on the market here in a true clinical study. Um, You have to dance around it and get products that are exported from other countries. So, for example... If you want to do a clinical trial here in the United States, you have to either use a product from GW Pharma or um, another pharmaceutical that's imported in. Interestingly, Israel just got approved to export cannabis to other countries. So I think we will actually be able to receive different lines from Israel to do clinical trials here in the United States, which is an interesting thing. But I actually think that there's going to be an explosion of research because Canada legalized cannabis and so all the investors can actually invest in cannabis. And some of these Canadian companies are even buying dispensaries and companies that are in the United States. So it's interesting. So they raised millions of dollars on the stock market, which is what you need to do clinical trials. You can't do a clinical trial on like fifty thousand dollars. It just doesn't work. You need millions, unfortunately. And that's been the, the issue here in the United States is that the cannabis companies couldn't invest in you can get the investors to invest that much money in a company and then the universities wouldn't take the money from the cannabis companies. But interestingly, these Canadian companies have no problem being able to fund research and be able to execute it. So um, I've been talking to people on all sorts of different topics. One of my big passions is women's health, pelvic pain, endometriosis, using cannabis for all sorts of disorders that disproportionately impact women over men. And I mean, everything from migraine to breast cancer, not down. And there's been a lot of buzz for cannabis for conditions that are not well treated by traditional pharmaceuticals. For example, endometriosis uh, is a condition of pelvic pain and other horrible symptoms that impacts 176 million women worldwide. And yet the pharmaceuticals that are available for it cause horrible side effects. They cause blood clotting. You know, women end up with hysterectomies, like, and they're still not out of pain and their, their symptoms are not gone. It's not a treatment. It's just, you know, they're just trying to manage these symptoms, but they're never actually hitting the, the target or the root cause of these conditions. And it's interesting that endometriosis, for example, has been shown to be a a condition that is caused by endocannabinoid deficiency or having a dysfunction in, in your endocannabinoid system. So it responds very well to cannabinoids. And now finally, some of these cannabis and pharmaceutical companies are now going, oh yeah, maybe, maybe women and the 82% of women that have pelvic pain and, you know, the 176 million women worldwide that have this condition could be actually treated by a cannabis treatment and we should invest money in, in these studies. And as somebody who ran in a, a, you know, a nonprofit for years and trying to raise money and talking to all these different foundations, like the Endometriosis Foundation and this foundation, trying to get money for these studies, it was just funny because they always go, well, it's not really medicine. You know, there's not any other clinical trials. You know, this isn't proven. And not enough people have actually benefited from this, even though you could show, like, there's thousands of patients for yourself, but that this doctor and this doctor, they don't care. Finally, enough, uh, enough has changed. You know, Canada was a big trigger for people opening up their minds. And then also seeing, again, like, those publicly traded cannabis companies in Canada going, okay, 
not only is this maybe less stigmatized, but there's also a huge financial opportunity here. So when you say money, all of a sudden people care, right? They don't care about ending human <laughs> suffering. They care about the money. It's so it's so hard for me as a dealer to, you know, think about that. But Oh, absolutely. I mean, after twenty years in Humboldt, I'm like, Oh, now you now you guys want the money and now you care, but where were you when yeah, people were going to jail and get getting arrested? Or why aren't you speaking out for the people who are still currently in jail? For cannabis, mm-hmm. you know, but it's like, yeah, as long as they're making their money, that's all they care about. Exactly. But, you know, I, I'm excited to finally see some movement in that area because as somebody um, who suffered with that condition themselves, I mean, I will tell you a little story about what happened in a stigmatized healthcare system. So one day I woke up and I was just like, darn, um, <laughs> I feel like my, like, one of my ovaries is like going to explode. And I've had this, you know, um, I've had ovarian cysts before and I've had, um, you know, the burst and other issues and it's been really, really painful. I know the difference between like I'm having back cramps and like I need to go to the hospital. And I, you know, I was at the borderline. I was like, maybe I can just buy a brownie and just chill for a day or two, go to sleep and like ride this out. And I go and I pick up a brownie from a dispensary. And this was in, um, this was actually early 2014. This scenario is also one of the reasons why I left California. So I pick up this brownie and I just realized like something is wrong. And I was like, I need to go to the hospital and get checked out. Because I like, I felt like there was all this fluid like me. Like I just know myself very well. And so I go to the hospital. I'm like, I'm in horrible, horrible pain. I have ovarian issues and endometriosis. I think something is wrong. And I go in there and they're just like, are you just seeking drugs? Like basically because it says I'm a marijuana user in their files. I go to a hospital that's um, in the Kaiser Permanente system. And they're just like, oh, pill seekers here again. I'm like, I'm not looking for pills. I don't use pills. I think stop. And um, they basically were like, we're not going to do anything. We're not going to scan you. You're just like a drug seeker. And I'm like, what does my medical file say? Like, this is disturbing. And I was like, please, like, I'm not okay. Like, please don't just send me home. And instead, they were like, they sniffed around in my stuff. And they're like, oh, you're, you're on the marijuana. Literally, that's what they say to me. They take out my cannabis, like, brownie. And I have to eat it. It's literally all the packaging. And they're like, you're high right now, aren't you? And I was like, what? Like, where is this conversation going? I'm in horrible pain. Like, I am, like, actually, like, screaming out in pain. Like, that's how much pain I was in. It was horrible. But they decided that I was high um, and I needed to be in a psychiatric hole because I was in that much pain. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> and, uh, no, listen to this story. And then they, they hold me to sober me up. They don't even give me a Tylenol for 17 hours. Nothing. Well, I'm sitting there crying and like level 10 pay. <laughs> like, and it turns out after 17 hours, a psychiatrist comes and says, yeah, you're not high. And I was like, well, after 17 hours, I shouldn't be high. But I wasn't high to begin with, guys, just so you know. And I started explaining to me, he doesn't know what THC and CBD is. And like, this is like some like Harvard trained psychiatrist in 2014 in Los Angeles. She should know at least what THC is for goodness. I was like, Marinol, do you know what Marinol is? Oh, yeah, I have to look it up. I was like, great, this guy's a winner. And so I explained to him what it is. And he's like, are you really a scientist? That's always a question I get from people, too. As a patient, why can't a patient also be a scientist? Like, you know, doctors are patients, too. So I'm going, I'm like, I'm not crazy. I just want to go home or get some treatment for what I came in here for. So he decides that I'm no longer crazy and I'm the release is hold. And I had a cop actually standing in front of my hospital bed this whole time because I was like in they were afraid I was going to hurt someone or something because it was high. This is hilarious. Like it's in retrospect, it's funny. Like at the time it was like literally the worst thing that ever happened in my life. They end up 
treating me, they do find I actually have two pounds of like blood and fluid that accumulated in my stomach, like like all over. Like it was like not I was actually in a, in, like a train wreck in terms of health, and they ended up treating me and everything and releasing me. But you know, like oh sorry, you weren't crazy, my bad. Like that's all I got, and that was the kind of stigma when I talked to other patients um, in. California, they're like, yeah, if they find out that you have cannabis on you or something, then then you're no longer a person that they treat. You're just like this cannabis, weird cannabis drug addict user. Like that's how they treated people in hospitals. Well, and they still do because I have a friend who was just hospitalized in California and they made, I mean, and he's a paraplegic and they made him feel awful for using cannabis as medicine. And it's like, (laughs) it's like, you're kidding me, right? (laughs) This is ridiculous. I mean, first of all, like he's not a threat to anyone. And this has been a medicine in California for over 20 years now. And the doctors still won't accept some doctors still won't accept what's going on. But we know this is changing or we hope that it's going to change maybe more rapidly than it has the last 20 years. So, yeah, I'm definitely sorry that you had that experience and to be belittled because, yeah, why why would a scientist know anything about her body anyway? You know, it makes no sense. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, think about it. If you don't stick up for yourself, I mean, no matter what you have going on or what medicine you're taking, but I think it's so important to empower women who choose to use cannabis about those conversations they have to have with their doctor because even... In California, even in Colorado and states that have legalized, people think that it means that all the doctors are okay with it, that the health insurance companies are okay with it. It's still not because it's not federally legal. So that's the difference. Like if you talk about cannabis with your doctor in Canada because it's federally legal, they are okay with it. Like there's zero issues. I mean, you might have some like still judgmental fools out there, you know, but no one is going to try to like harm you, call the cops on you or anything for your legal cannabis use. And so it's still an issue where it's going to take some time. I think even if a miracle happened, you know, in the United States and they said, okay, cannabis is legal on every level, it's still going to take some time for these hospital policies to change, for the medical school to implement education that says, you know, this is a medicine instead of this is something harmful you should be telling your patients not to take. There's still medical schools across the country that talk about this as a drug abuse that you should always tell your patients not to be using. So, you know, we think that we've moved so far, and yet the perception of doctors, I think it was still 50% of doctors think that cannabis has no medical value because it hasn't been been proven in clinical trials for everything, or that the only cannabis that has medical value is epidiolex because it has a a clinical trial, or Marinol because it has a clinical trial. But because all these you know, all these other products out there haven't been validated in clinical trials, but to them, it has the same value as, you know, vitamins, which they think don't do anything for anyone's health either. (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, Well, let's take a quick break and then we're going to come back and we, I I have a couple questions about where you think federal legalization of cannabis is going. And also want to bring up uh, the Denver decriminalized mushroom initiative too, if you don't mind talking about that. Oh, I'd love to. We're back on the Herb Walk podcast, and today I am interviewing Dr. Michelle Ross, PhD and cannabinoid medicine researcher, along with many other talents. We just kind of left off talking about the federal legalization of cannabis and how likely or unlikely that is. Anyone in your circles, do they have any educated guesses on what is actually happening with federal legalization? 
it's sort of funny because you talk to people in this industry that say that they have all these like big lawyers and they know everything. I, I talked to somebody literally two days ago that was like in six to 12 months, my lawyer said it's definitely happening. Federal legalization is happening, but how long it takes to actually like implement that and everything because we have this big bureaucracy, right? You know, we pass laws and then it still takes like one to two years for them to actually be like, you know, put into place. You know, I've heard that. I've heard other people just think that, nope, it's not happening, um, especially if Trump is reelected and he has a very hard stance against drugs, being that he doesn't use alcohol or, you know, or cannabis or any drugs himself and that he's never going to allow it. I think it's all over the place. I think that there's some wishful thinking, but it's going to be hard for the United States to maintain its position that it's a schedule one drug with no medical value, one with all the clinical research. I mean, like, it's still, it's just ridiculous right now. But also the World Health Organization or the WHO came out with this big, you know, uh, report. And it's been based on like years of research and like the top, like, scientists and doctors and policy experts around the world and they basically stated that it's wrong that it's on schedule the way it is and so the united states has always said well we don't want to break all these drug treaties and we don't want to be out of step with all these other countries and other countries were like yeah we messed up so you know we recommend a change and they're going to implement this change so the rest of the world is saying cannabis is okay as a medicine. The United States is the only one that says, nope, it's not a medicine, but that would be ridiculous. However, our current administration is also the only country that's not signing climate change agreements or things like that. So just because everyone else is doing it doesn't mean that we will, unfortunately, and we might have to wait till we have a Democratic president to make some change on this, which makes me really sad. But I'm really excited to see the Democratic presidential candidates like Cory Booker, who actually was one of the co-signers or I think the initial sponsors of uh, several cannabis legalization laws like the CARES Act for the United States, like bills that basically were proposed but never actually got heard on our floor because people that decide who which bills get heard are all Republicans that hate cannabis. But (laughs) the people that have been pushing and receiving awards from all the cannabis nonprofits and everything are the ones running for president right now. Cory Booker... Kirsten Gillibrand, um, even Camilla Harris, you know, is a cannabis legal uh, for cannabis legalization. So there's a bunch of people that have popped up that at least even if they don't win the primaries or, you know, they don't win against Trump um, or whoever the, the Republican candidate is in 2020. Of course, it's too early to know what's going to happen. But I think that at least they're starting off the conversation strong. Like before people were dancing around it, like Hillary Clinton was never like, you know, let's legalize cannabis. That's my platform. You know, she might have done it, but like she never really wanted to talk about that straightforward. But these candidates are now like the first thing out of their mouth is like racial injustice. Let's legalize cannabis. Like let's strengthen our economy next. Right. Like that's the first thing that they're going to do. That shows that the United States is ready for this and that they think that there's enough support, um, you know, within our house and our Senate, et cetera. And, you know, I really think it's time. Canada went first, and it's just time. So, you know, I don't want to get my hopes up because there's been a lot of things that, you know, you think is, is going to happen, and it's, it's just taken this long. Like, it's taken this long for the farm bill to pass. For them to say CBD that does, you know, from hemp isn't a dangerous drug, which we all know is, nothing is harmless, right? But it's definitely not a, you know, a drug that needs to be, you know, contained in a safe away from, you know, you know, like Harley guarded drug abuse. So, you know, I think that 
we're more conservative in the United States than you would think, especially considering that these other countries, like all these, like almost third world countries are like, yes, cannabis is a medicine. Let's go put it in our healthcare system. Let's save our country, you know, like, and we're still debating this, like it's, it's some kind of moral issue. Well, I think that's what makes America so slow on issues is one, because it all becomes a moral issue. And we have a lot of like, I don't think we have a lot of people in power who really want people like us, like free thinking and really like think outside the box and want new opportunities and new paradigms for people to live in. Like, like, you know, unwilling to even accept that there's climate change, you know, they're so concerned about making sure that we don't have a right to say, well, you know, what we do with our own bodies, much less our own spirits and our minds, which as we know, things like cannabis and also psilocybin mushrooms are really like mind expanding and also, you know, create, can have the opportunity to create huge shifts in culture and paradigms. And I think, you know, the, the old guards are kind of afraid of like too many people free thinking and free loving and, you know, wanting true <laughs> equality and justice for all and all of those things. Right. Which is what cannabis brings to so many people. And, you know, the more people that are even just smoking hemp to calm down and relax, I think, mm -hmm. and, um, you know, get off tobacco or whatever substances they're using. You know, I just believe the U.S. would be a way better place. But, you know, I'm not in power and nor do I want to be a politician. <laughs> you know, uh, it's sort of interesting that we are supposed to be this very advanced country. yet We are one of the most sickest countries in terms of physical and mental health. And so right now, there's 300 million people worldwide suffering from depression. And that's not even including the PTSD numbers, the anxiety numbers, and other mental health issues, just depression, right? And it's something that we don't take seriously, and it's something that the traditional medical field really doesn't have suitable treatments for. So 25% of people that uh, actually do get a, a depression diagnosis, do see their doctor, do try all the pharmaceuticals, are resistant to all of them. So, you know, here we have you know, a medical system that's barely helping them. And when they do try to reach out, they, we don't have, you know, whoever thought that depression was uncurable, right? Like we usually talk about uncurable diseases like cancer or something like that. But here we have people struggling with depression that want to end their lives. And we're like, oh, well, sorry, we have no hope for you. And the fact that cannabis um, and CBD can be very effective um, in some types of depression. Um, for other people, they found that microdosing, LSD or microdosing psilocybin mushrooms is actually what works for them. And what's interesting, um, and I don't get to talk about a lot, but I'm really excited about this, is the opportunity for us to think about cannabis, CBD, psilocybin, LSD, MDMA, um, as other alternative pharmaceuticals, right? Um, because not everyone needs something that is increasing serotonin, or maybe they only need a subtype of a serotonin receptor activated. So CBD, for example will activate a subtype of a serotonin receptor called 5-HT1A. And psilocybin, for example, will activate the 5-HT2A. Uh, so there are two different types of receptors that CBD and psilocybin hit, so they're different. So, for, you know, you might actually have a type of depression that might be caused by a mutation in one receptor. Like that subtype is broken, so that's why you need extra serotonin there. Maybe that's why for some people CBD works really well for their depression. For some people, psilocybin works better. For some people, you know, Prozac works better, right? We don't really treat depression based on your genetic causes or other causes. But I think the future of medicine is really understanding 
what's wrong in our DNA or, you know, other medical experiences and things like that that, that may have caused like, you know, brain injury and have caused actual physical inflammation and injury and depression or, you know, traumas that happened to us. One of the things that I love about cannabis is that no matter how you use it, it's going to help facilitate both forgetting some of these traumatic memories. So that's why it's so helpful for PTSD, but it also helps people reshape their connection with trauma, reshape their connection with the world that they're in presently, and also reshape how they think about the future. And all that's so helpful. I think that we really forget that cannabis can be a spiritual medicine. We always just think about these receptors and everything. But I think it's used as spiritual medicine and connecting with yourself and others. That's really what's broken in depression. It's really a sort of isolation. It's a disorder of loneliness. And cannabis catalyzes connection with others. It catalyzes compassion for ourselves. I think that beyond what it's actually doing to brain chemistry is beyond powerful and why it's something that I really suggest anyone with any mental health issues really finds a professional and really works through it because I think that they can find healing uh, with cannabis that they haven't found in traditional pharmaceuticals. No one goes on Prozac and is like, oh, I had like an epiphany and a life awakening. You're like, they're just literally getting by on it, right? Or they're returning to normal, whereas people that have tried cannabis for depression and anxiety, some of them are actually saying, you know, not only do I just feel like myself, but actually I feel like the best version of myself ever. And they're doing things and accomplishing things that they never thought possible because really it's helping restore their, you know, their inner happiness and inner stability and reconnecting them with the world. So I know there's so much like I'm so hopeful for, for humanity with cannabis. I mean, I am too, because I think even just having this dialogue that cannabis allows is going to change the way healthcare practitioners work with depression. You know, as you were saying, you know, pharmaceuticals, you know, maybe psilocybin would work better, maybe cannabis, you know, maybe it is Prozac that somebody needs in that moment. But what I see with my clients that's really lacking is, you know, the doctor who's not a psychologist or I'm sorry, a psychiatrist um, or even a mental health doctor in any form will prescribe them an antidepressant and then there's no follow-up. It's like, yep, you're on this forever. It's like, okay, well, where's the counseling? Where's the nutrition counseling? Where's the like talking about lifestyle and what's your community like and what's your faith like and what brings you joy? And it's just like, here's your pill. And then they never follow up with them. And then they don't also require some form of counseling in whatever form that may, that person may be most comfortable with, whether it's, it might be art counseling, maybe it's, you know, cognitive behavioral, maybe it's exposure, you know, whatever it is that they are asking for, they're not even given any options. It's like, here's your pill, walk away. And that's all we're going to deal with. Whereas working with cannabis, you know, they get that connection just by utilizing the plant medicine. But like you said, working with a practitioner who is willing to look at it as from a more holistic point of view and not just here's your pill, call me in a year when you need your refill. You know, I actually did my PhD in neuroscience in a department of molecular psychiatry. So my job was actually to test the effects on the brain, traditional pharmaceuticals like Adderall and Prozac, as well as some of the drugs of abuse like cannabis, heroin, and cocaine. So it's it's sort of interesting that I was surrounded by a lot of uh, pharmaceutical lingo. I actually got trained in some of the mental health stuff there. And so that's why I was like, even though I'm a neuroscientist, I have like a little bit more training in psychiatry than your traditional neuroscientist. But 
you know, we know that people benefit more when they're prescribed a pill, a pharmaceutical pill like Prozac plus going through therapy. And yet the just here's a pill and, and no therapy is the standard. So this is why I'm a huge advocate for um, using cannabis or other psychedelics and combining that with those life style changes. Uh, I think it's so important to show that value because I think that there are people that are using cannabis and they'll say, okay, well, I'm using it because I'm depressed. But the way that they're using cannabis without the guidance of a practitioner, they could either be abusing the drug just like they could, you know, someone can abuse alcohol, right? It's not actually helping them become less depressed. It's actually be, uh, you know, becoming a habit or becoming a crutch or causing more isolation, right? If you're using it so much that you never leave the house or, you know, or you're overeating or things like that, like there are ways that you can consume cannabis and it's not an um, a good fashion, or you could be using the wrong strains and you can actually help facilitate some negative aspects like too much anxiety or a little bit of psychosis if you happen to have, you know, a um, more severe mental health condition. But I think that done with the right practitioner who is helping you identify what products are the best, also helping you know, just check in, um, you know, also about like cannabis use. Like, how do you feel about your cannabis use? You know, how do you feel about your alcohol use right now? Like how, how do you feel about your relationships at work, at home, et cetera? And just working with that client uh, to make sure that not only are they feeling better, you know, mentally, but also that they're showing improvement in other aspects of their life and the quality of their life. And I think that's really something that we know as, as practitioners that are, are preaching the, the holistic approach. Uh, but there's still a lot of doctors. Like, it's hard for me sometimes to even talk to traditional doctors because they want to know about cannabis, but then they still want to include cannabis as a treatment like they do for the other pills. Like, they're not going to be following up with any type of therapy or life coaching or anything like that. And that's why what we do, we have a certified coach network. Um, and it's just providing that support for the ones that are like, okay, we're open to cannabis, but we still are not going to have these meaningful conversations, you know, just because we don't have time for it or health insurance doesn't reimburse for it. But people are willing to pay now. It's interesting. There's a lot of apps out there that are on a subscription-based model. For example, we all, we sort of call ourselves like the Joyable Cannabis. Joyable is an app where they have actually CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, uh, for people that have anxiety or depression. And they can go through this app and, you know, find out what their baseline anxiety is, find out, you know, how you treat anxiety and go through these little, like, like basically an app with a workbook to help manage your anxiety and it's got homework and things like that. We have a similar program where we do that, but we also include cannabis in it. And, you know, what was your intention with cannabis? What caused your anxiety uh, with cannabis, right? Because not everyone has a good experience with it. Some people with anxiety actually have more anxiety after using cannabis. So how to frame that experience and how to identify what are the situations where they feel more comfortable using cannabis, realizing that it's not the product, it might just be their perception or the people they're with or something else that was heightening their anxiety and it's not the actual plant itself and just being able to work through that until they find a really good relationship with the plant. And I think that it's really helpful for the mental health aspect. Right now, everyone is just assumed, you know, it's like you've got cancer. Well, here's your dosing protocol. You've got this or that. You know, there are some things that just physiologically work. But when you have somebody with mental health issues, it's a lot more complicated because cannabis can amplify emotions, right? It can amplify or, or change our perceptions of things. And so when you're already working with someone that might have heightened anxiety or, you know, stress, hormones going on, that you need to work a little bit with them to make them feel comfortable with the plant and make them feel empowered rather than, you know, scared of it. 
Absolutely. Um, and is that part of your infused health program that you're talking about? Yeah, we have three programs. Um, so our one, it's sort of funny because, you know, we're, we're not doctors, right? So I, I have a PhD. I don't have an MD. So we're very careful to stay within what you consider not medical conditions, right? So we don't say we're, we're treating anxiety or depression. We're treating stress. <laughs> but, um, you know, um, life is stressful and any you don't necessarily have to have a diagnosed mental illness to benefit from any type of therapy, right, or any type of regimen um, with cannabis. You know, all of us are living a more stressful life, whether it's not getting enough sleep, whether it's not eating right, whether it's, you know, our work is horrible, our job is horrible, our relationships are horrible, whatever. So we all are suffering from some aspects of feelings and anxiety, stress, insomnia, et cetera. So our programs do help people work through some of those initial things of, okay, um, I've tried cannabis, I hate cannabis, right? Like that's a lot of times we get people that are like, I smoked that one time when I was 20 and it didn't make me feel good. Like, why should I believe that this is going to help me? Or I tried a product at a dispensary and it didn't work for me. What can I do? We're blessed in some states like California. There's a cannabis expert like on every corner, <laughs> really. Um, but in many places there aren't. And so you have limited product variety. Um, you have limited experts if you go to the dispensary they may not be able to help them or they may be worried about talking to somebody with a mental health issue right so these self-guided programs really help them uh, be able to track their use and also understand how to optimize it for themselves like we don't want to have a relationship where it's very transactional here you go like this is what we recommend you know we'll see you in a month we really want it to be where somebody is being able to understand how to go learn and work with this plant and the relationship with this plant, the relationship with themselves and have goals. We look at transformation and not transaction. So really our goal is saying, okay, we, you want to be less depressed and more active, or you want to start being able to actually having, you know, making public speeches, or you want to actually make two friends by the end of, you know, these two months, whatever your goals are, we can help you with cannabis and and part of it is the self-guided course where people can actually they work with these interactive components and forms and be able to see themselves, okay, I am actually doing better. Or this is why this experience that I thought was bad with cannabis was just because I had a really rough day and I wasn't using cannabis in a way that helps me. I was using it as a crutch or something like that. So people are able to work through this and and at the end of it, come out better. So we're still obviously a new program. So what we're trying to do is get as much as many users in so we can validate this. And we've been talking to about clinical trials where, uh, you know, we have this uh, platform and it does work and we can show that it works better than just cannabis alone because there's been some clinical trials actually with some apps that suggested that are like, it wasn't actually good for depression, which I was like, I was actually angry about because I'm like, you know, Overall, I would say that most patients are improving with depression on cannabis, but I would say that it would be, there would be even more significant improvement if there was more interaction with a healthcare professional or some guided, you know, protocol with it, right, and support. But to say like, oh, it doesn't work, you know, it's not something that I feel is, is real. I think it's, you know, when we see people not do well with, with cannabis, it's because they're not getting any support, any actual real good recommendations, right? If you pick the wrong strain, you're not going to necessarily benefit. You know, there is some benefit to THC for many uh, clients, but, you know, there are some that need different things. So I think that combining coaching with this platform, 
will provide significant reductions in uh, levels of anxiety, depression, stress. We're also hopefully like our goal is to raise enough money with this company where we could do that. We could stress, we could test for stress markers and things like that. So we really want to be validating an alternative method and protocol for treating depression because again, the market's huge. So thankfully when you say things like that, you're like, well, there's 300 million potential people that could be benefiting with this with depression alone. But right now, just cannabis isn't looking at things like this in a very technical and methodical way. Whereas I'm a scientist, like I came into this, I got my PhD because I wanted to help people with addiction and help people struggling with mental health issues. And it was like the number one thing I think that is going to be all the drugs out there is, is cannabinoids and psychedelics. So I think that this entire class of medicine is just pretty much probably going to replace most of, you know, what we consider to think of as psychiatric drugs. So I'm excited to do this. It's just like, it's a huge beast. No one knows how much work it is. Like I work, like I've been working so hard on this, but I've been in the tech field for like a long time too. So I was like, I've done science, I've done tech, I've done nutraceuticals. So I'm just all over the place. And it's just like, this is like my baby where I've combined everything to one thing. And I was like, cool, let's do this. We're going to save the world. <laughs> well, that's definitely a lofty goal. Any assistance you need, definitely like reach out because we all want to help save the world, right? Especially if we're going to do it through cannabis and, and psilocybin and other things. I do want to cover your book uh, real quick. Um, well, not real quick, you know, but um, I do want to get to our, our psilocybin talk. But one thing I really liked about your book, Vitamin Weed, A Four-Step Plan to Prevent and Reverse Endocannabinoid Deficiency, is, well, first on the front page, you said get healthy, not high, or, or on the cover. And, and that just made me laugh immediately because it's like, well, yeah, we want to get high, of course, but definitely the most important thing we want to do is to actually get healthy. And what I appreciate about that book is that you really talk about personalized nutrition, herbal remedies, lifestyle changes. We talked about it before, just like a more holistic approach to working with cannabis. And as a researcher, I love it that you put it in your book because, yeah, you can't just like, I'm going to smoke weed and everything's going to get better. And when I see all of these people just, you know, selling their multi-level marketing CBD products and claim, you know, all sorts of crazy things like one chemical constituent's going to like save your life. How do you bring things like personalized nutrition and lifestyle into a research setting? Yeah, I think that really the only way to do it is through technology because there are so many pieces of it, right? Somebody could be trying to journal, but trying to take pictures of a journal and everything is just like too much work. So one of the beautiful things about all these genetic testing platforms that have come into play, like for example, 23andMe, Ancestry, et cetera, is that they actually, you can export your raw genetic data from these programs and then you can plug them into either other programs, you can build your own platform for looking through the genes, but we do things a little bit manually right now just because we're building out like the, the entire back end. Like we have a front end. Our ideal, in our ideal world, we'd be able to take this raw genetic data from some of these platforms, be able to see, okay, well, these are the mutations you have in serotonin receptors and endocannabinoid receptors, et cetera. And we can actually pick more targeted treatment protocols for me for day one rather than doing the, like the trial and error that you normally see when you're trying to pick an antidepressant uh, for a patient or a cannabis strain, right? Like no one can look at a person and say, that's the product you need right now. But if we have certain data like genetic data and we can see, okay, this is how your body metabolizes cannabinoids. This is how your body metabolizes specific pharmaceutical drugs. This is 
what's wrong with the cannabinoid receptor. So if we pick something that targets this cannabinoid, CB1, say, over CB2 or trip B1 over a different one, like we could actually be able to more quickly be able to pinpoint what is the best um, treatment for a specific client. So, you know, we're already manually reading some of this data off right now, and it's, it's very helpful. And the reason why is because some of these conditions have specific mutations in, in cannabinoid receptors, including depression, anxiety, and PTSD. So there's a reason why some people respond well to cannabis and some people don't, or some people respond better to CPD and some, some don't. But most practitioners are not working at the kind of level. So it's like we want to be able to provide a platform that makes it easier for everyone, right? Like there's no real platform out there that's sort of what we do. We're like trying to do things like, um, you know, picking from like one app or in another app, like there's apps for nutritionists, there's apps for personal trainers, there's apps for like buying cannabis, like a weed maps or something, but there's not really a platform that really helps cannabis coaches um, be able to input what their coaching sessions are input that genetic data, be able to see everything in like one place and also be able to do meal plans and things like that. So that's what we've been working on because in cannabis space, unfortunately, as soon as the platform that you're using finds out that like you're putting cannabis information on it, all of a sudden they're like, Ooh, yeah, your payments have been declined. <laughs> like you can't process things. And we've done this with like 30 different platforms where it was cool. Like as long as we coded everything where it was just like, I don't know, they're taking five milligrams of broccoli every day. <laughs> like <laughs> then they figure out that broccoli meant cannabis. And then all of a sudden like they wouldn't work with us anymore. Right. And we realized that until the stigma is over, you know, and it's fully legalized in every country in the world, it's still going to be a challenge. And even taking payments, for example, like this sounds so stupid, but in order to take payments, for my book, Vitamin Weed, I got shut down from six merchant processors. And I was like, it's just a book. Like, I'm selling a book, right? But because it said weed on it and has pictures of cannabis leaves, um, we were turned down. I lost seven strike merchant accounts. Like, I can't, I couldn't take payments for my book for the longest time. Like, that's ridiculous. And so, you know, there are practitioners across the country that have the same thing. And we're like, we're not even selling CBD or anything that's supposed to be, like, high risk. What we're selling is education, you know, and... Right now, selling education is banned as risky in a lot of merchant processors. So it's sort of a weird world where it's like you could be talking, telling people how to, I don't know, make bombs and like make out, you know, alcoholic drinks all day on the Internet. Right. Or how to, you know, build guns. But here we are talking about using cannabis as medicine and improving your nutrition, you know, your diet and managing stress. And that wasn't a legal thing to be selling on these platforms. So. Yeah, I've been actually stopped on the border, too. I was stopped on the border in Canada. They asked me about my suspicious vitamin weed shipments to Canada. And I was like, <laughs> I think you mean my book shipments? So I was just like, oh, God. <laughs> so it's been fun. I can't wait till legalization happens. So I don't have to have these conversations. Like, I'm just a normal, like, tech entrepreneur. <laughs> like, I'm not, like, the vice category. It's like, goodness, guys, you would think I'm, like, running a prostitution ring or something. Like, like. I don't know, much more nefarious. Like, I'm just like, I'm just trying to help people to not become depressed like, or get out of chronic pain. Like, I'm not some, like, evil, crazy kingpin or something. It's just funny. But that's how they treat me. I mean, like, I'm on a vice list of a lot of things. As soon as you talk about cannabis, you are. So I just can't wait oh, yeah. to move on that. I can't wait to, like, when I talk to investors, too. So, I mean, obviously, to run a platform like this, this is not something like you can bootstrap. So there's things that we have already going. But in order to integrate some of these other components, it costs money to build that stuff. 
So we've been talking to a lot of uh, even female investors, right? Because we're a female-led team. And it's really hard for women in cannabis to get money. Like, it's hard for any women, you know, CEO in fact, to be able to get money. Um, a lot less money is allotted to them. But it's funny because a lot of the funds that support women CEOs that popped up after, like, the whole Me Too movement and things like that, people were like, we're going to start funding women, and that's how we're going to, you know, stop all this misogyny and stuff happening at the tech companies. Well, they still won't invest in women in cannabis. Like, the... The groups that have popped up that are supporting women CEOs in tech in the last year or two, they're like, we don't support women in cannabis because as soon as we fund a cannabis company, as soon as we fund a cannabis company, then the other investors in our fund will pull out because they're all conservative or they're farmer or they're oil or whatever it is. And you're like, really? So there's no dollars for us either in this sector. We're like, you know, there's, I think one fund just popped up to fund women in cannabis once. Like, <laughs> so it's sort of funny that everyone wants to see these things. Everyone wants to see cannabinoid medicine implemented, but it's still like, you know, it, in order for this change to happen, in order for us to move the dial, in order for us to this to be mainstream medicine, um, in the new way that healthcare is is performed, we actually have to put our dollars behind this. And I think actually it's sort of funny that we have these very high level structures in place in the United States and Canada, some of these other countries where it might be hard to really implement cannabis into the traditional medical structure because it threatens pharma and it threatens a lot of different things. Whereas in countries where there isn't a strong healthcare system or it's broken, right? Think about like third world countries where there's actually opportunity. Imagine if we were able to go into a country and the first thing that we were able to do was not, you know, bring pharma in. We actually started the healthcare system from scratch with plant-based medicine. Right. <laughs> like we have the opportunity in some countries like that. I've been talking to some amazing people that have been really working on that. Cannabis has been legalized in some countries where the healthcare system is, is almost non-existent. So we have opportunities, I think, to have other countries almost as a model. This is what it could be like if we treated people with cannabis. It's an antibiotic. It's an antiviral. Like when used in a certain way, in a certain fashion, so there's a lot of opportunities for us to be able to go with plant-based medicine and not create opioid crises in other countries and things like that. We can do it right the first time, whereas trying to fix our broken system is sometimes just so hard. I still feel like cannabis medicine is never going to be it's never going to be the first line of medicine. I think it's always going to be like sort of the, in the alternative field, like where we put acupuncture and Chinese medicine, which I'm like, again, I'm like, that should be first line therapy, not like after you've tried 10 different opioid prescriptions, but... I Definitely. just feel like we're going to be fringe. Yeah, we're going to be fringe for a little bit. And unfortunately, I still think that there's a lot of middle America that is just never going to try cannabis medicine, not even in the next 20 to 50 years. So just unfortunately, it's the same people that think that evolution shouldn't be taught in schools. So I think that there's a lot more work and education and maybe they never, maybe some people in the United States never shift the, the stigma around cannabis. Maybe it's just, in, you know, stuck in there. Whereas, you know, in other countries that have nothing, I mean, they're looking for any solution and they don't have the same uh, stigmas uh, about plant medicine. They just don't have any medicine, like, period, you know, in, in those countries. And so but they, I have think like, and they have like there. herbal medicine that's not capitalized upon yet. It's like more like folk doctors in their villages as opposed to like a big infrastructure of hospitals and research centers. And because they have their medicine, mm -hmm. it's just not. Yeah. how we look at a medical model, you know? So my concern with big pharma really in cannabis would be, I mean, we have Epidiolex already that is FDA approved and now on the market in the United States. And then, you know, when it does become federal legal, 
the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, right? We already have a patent on cannabinoids for, you know, basically like neurological problems. So, I mean, I just see pharma taking cannabis out of the hands of people like you and me, because now there's, you know, GW Pharmaceuticals has 200 plus patents pending for different combinations of cannabinoids and terpenoids and, you know, in different solutions and pills and tinctures and everything else. So don't you think that big pharma is just going to end up taking that from the people, maybe not whole plant medicine, but at least that like breaking down of constituents into different percentages? It's definitely something I've warned about and why I, I tell people that we really should be fighting for cannabis or cannabinoids as vitamins, right? In the United States, vitamin D is available as prescription drug for high amounts, um, but it's also available as an OTC drug. So you can go to your doctor, they can say, okay, do you want a script for this? And it doesn't cost a lot because it's generic. Or you can just take maybe 10 times the amount of the 600 IU of, you know, vitamin D pills or whatever that's on the market, right? You don't necessarily have to take, you know, one big 10,000 IU pill. But I really want to see, okay, high level, like high doses of single cannabinoids like THC or CBD or like even just like whole plant extract, whole plant extracts of say CBD that are really, really high milligram dosage. I feel like if you're using it for cancer, using it for um, seizures, that, that really should be under the purview of a doctor. Like seizures, I, I don't even treat seizure disorder. I tell people like, please go to these experts because that's not outside like my field of both um, knowledge and also like risk, you know, aversion. I don't want anything to happen to a pediatric patient, right? I really think that that should be handled by a neurologist. But I think that for most things, like, right, if you're just trying to relieve anxiety, you know, I feel like if you're telling somebody that they need a prescription for a CBD vape pen to take, like vape before they go get a talk or something like that, seems silly, right? You know, we have things like 5-HTT that are available as vitamins on this market. So, um, my book was written in a way that I just wanted to remind people that vitamins and herbs and other OTC treatments, that they work. Even though the government continues to put out paper after paper that are like, herbs don't work and this and that, like, it's very annoying. If you look in other countries, um, just because, again, this work wasn't supported by U.S. government money doesn't mean that the research that happens in other countries is not real. It just actually means that our country is not funding um, alternative medicine um, in the you know, clinical research in the way that it should. But I think that many patients do very, very well on herbal supplements and nutrition. So I think that people should actually just start disregarding the drug that's coming out of the United States. We are propagandizing uh, science here and just really focus on, okay, how is it working for me? Am I getting results with myself under the care of a practitioner like you or me, right? Like, okay, if you change your diet, you exercise, you practice meditation, and you take cannabis or some other natural products, you're going to see results, right? Um, if you're just popping any type of pill, whether it's a Chinese herb or it's a, it's a vitamin by itself, it's not going to do anything if you're, you know, on your sad American diet or things like that. So I think that we really need to make sure that in the United States that we push for that we have a over-the-counter uh, cannabis and CBD market here, that we never take away the OTC nature. Um, even if, unfortunately, even if it has to be through the dispensary system, but I just don't want to see that it's only prescription only because we have a horrible system for health insurance in this com country. So many people don't have access to doctors and medicine because they don't have health insurance, so they can't afford health insurance. And 
you know, OTC drugs, there's actually a campaign by like, I, I don't know what the association for OTC drugs is, but that association actually has campaigns where they say, this is the reason why people need vitamins and OTC drugs, like, you know, to relieve pain and for period cramps and things like that. It's because it saves them visits going to the doctor. So OTC drugs save America, like, billions of dollars and ER visits and doctor visits, et cetera, because instead of somebody going, oh, I have a headache, I have to go to the doctor for a prescription drug, they can just pop a migraine pill, right? And it's very, you know, it's not going to kill them, right? It has a low, you know, a low risk profile, et cetera. Well, CBD has a low risk profile. Low dose THC has a low risk profile. Again, you can't overdose on cannabinoids. So why are we so worried about having to see a doctor as a gatekeeper for something that will not kill somebody, Right. You know, all drugs have some abuse potential. All drugs have a potential for side effects. But all, all supplements or vitamins can potentially interact with other drugs and potentially can cause negative side effects, right? That's why, again, it's important to read, you know, what vitamin or herb you're taking or, you know, understand what kind of medications you're on. There are some medications that interact with birth control, which so many women are in hormonal birth control, but don't even read. You're like, okay, this supplement you're actually taking will make that less effective, right? You know? So I think that we have to fight for a safe and not over-regulated OTC market for, for cannabis. And that's something that I'm going to be fighting for. <laughs> you know, I don't, I don't necessarily align with pharma. Everyone always expects me to. They're like, just take the pharmaceutical money. You'll be like, <laughs> and you'll live a very good and cushy life. And I'm like, I just want to make sure that people that cannot afford the best health care in our country and other countries still have access to this because I know what it's like to be sick. You know, I used to be in a wheelchair. I was, I was very ill. I was fighting for my life. And I know what it's like not to have access to the best medical services. And without cannabis, I'd be dead today. So I want everyone to have that same opportunity. And it's going to take some of people with big hearts and uh, not necessarily the funding of a uh, big pharma to be able to fight that fight. Sometimes you feel like it's a losing fight, but I think that there's enough holistic practitioners in this country that together we can all make a strong argument for it. Yeah, I'm definitely on board for that. Um, that's pretty much, you know, my daily my daily speech to somebody during the day is like, yeah, we need to keep this in the hands of the people. And just that difference between decriminalization and legalization and how there's like a nuance of that word that a lot of people don't understand. And that's why I was so excited with the Denver initiative that it's actually just to decriminalize psilocybin mushrooms and not to legalize them. Will you just talk a little bit about that decriminalization initiative and why you chose to say decrim and not legalize the psilocybin mushrooms? We were really excited to be, I think, the first city or state that had and psilocybin decriminalization on the ballot. We actually were trying to target the last electoral cycle, but we didn't quite make it in terms of getting the language right. Like, this has been a process where people were like, oh, you guys just put it on, on the ballot. This was actually a year's worth of work of trying to refine what exactly would be approved by uh, the Denver Elections Board. Um, so the language about the title of the initiative, what the initiative could do or legally could not do. Like, you can't just say that a bill will do something. If it's, if it's illegal to do that, they, they will not let that, you know, people vote on it. Or they could vote on it, but then it will never be implemented because it, it goes against state law. So we actually decided to go with a city initiative versus a state initiative because, one, the state requires a lot more money to be able to pass, you know, like an amendment to the Constitution, um, which is how recreational cannabis was uh, legalized in the state. So we decided to go small 
stuff, just like how cannabis was legalized in Colorado and other states. So, like, first, you know, it was decriminalized in certain cities, then it was legalized for medical purposes, then it was legalized for recreational purposes, right? So the first step with cannabis wasn't to legalize it, you know, recreationally for everyone, right? It's baby steps. In Denver, we had to choose the words decriminalize instead of legalize because in the state framework, it's not legal. So you can't have a city making a, a, a legal framework for it. It's, there's There were certain um, issues with the contradicting uh, state statute. So we would have had to pay it past a medical bill that would have been on the state level, not the city level. So it was easier for us to be able to raise less signatures, right? You only need like four and a half thousand signatures to be able to be placed in a ballot in Denver as a uh, county city initiative. So we were able to get those that amount of signatures and be able to place that on the ballot. But decriminalization is really important because I think Denver, even though it's very liberal, decriminalization just means that if you possess psilocybin mushrooms, or you're growing them at home, you're drying them, et cetera, that you're not going to be arrested and you're not going to be charged with any crimes. Um, it does not mean that if you have your psilocybin mushrooms and you sell them, that you will not get in trouble for selling. We actually had to make sure that sales was not covered by the decriminalization initiative. And that's because, again, there's still stigma against it. They feel that there's a difference between possessing something for yourself and using it for yourself and then like selling it. So they were, they were afraid that there would be people that were like, okay, cool. I'm going to grow like, you know, 10,000 pounds of mushrooms and start selling them all over Denver. Right. That's not what they wanted to legalize. And while we do believe that there should be some kind of legal market for this, um, whether it's, you know, that psilocybin mushrooms are available at dispensaries in Colorado in the future or something like that. We've felt that the legislators and mayor, et cetera, were not, did not want to see that at this point. I think that there's also a lot of stigma with Colorado being that we legalized cannabis first. And everyone's like, oh, goodness, is Denver the new Amsterdam? First it was cannabis. Now it's psilocybin. What's next? Like heroin? And, you know, we actually at the same time had bills on the ballot for legalizing heroin injection sites. So that was actually a half-ballot argument for somebody to make. Like, oh, they're legalizing all the drugs there. I personally come from it where we should be focusing on harm reduction rather than punishment for any type of drug use, especially drug use that is actually not really drug use, but actually medicinal like cannabis and psilocybin and some of the other psychedelics and for certain intentions and purposes. There's a lot of stigma and a lot of like perception issues. And what we have to worry about is not creating something that like is exactly what we wanted, right? Like we all wanted, you know, we all wanted both decriminalization and legalization, right? Like the idea would be everyone that wants mushrooms can buy them, right? Like, great. But that's not what would have passed. And so we, we worried about is, you know, how do we get this on the ballot? How do we get the conversation started nationwide about legalizing uh, psilocybin? How do we get the conversation started about people understanding that it has medical benefits for anxiety, for depression, for addiction, for smoking cessation, for, you know, even autoimmune disorders? How do we start that conversation and how will our initiative, whether it passes, whether it doesn't, how will it help spark a legalization movement around psychedelics across the country? Because our initiative has made other cities and states think that this is actually something that should we should be focusing on in the next five to 10 years. And all these other states are like, how do we get this initiative started in our state? So we sort of sparked the movement here. Um, we're hopeful that this will pass. It has actually a lot more positive polling, you know, than we thought it would a year ago. And I think that's because, you know, 
more and more people every single day, everyone's talking about microdosing, you know, mushrooms with mixed like that. So there's a little bit more public education on it. And Denver is a little less conservative than some other cities. Like this wouldn't be passing in Pueblo, for example. It wouldn't be passing anywhere in Colorado, except for maybe Boulder and Denver. Because when you look at the voting, everybody else is voting pretty conservative in the state. Yeah, that's why we didn't want to go with the state. We're like, oh, dear, like we forgot, you know, that Colorado is sort of a purple state. You know, we've got these very blue spots in Denver and Boulder, but everywhere else is very, very conservative. And in fact, I think 75 percent of counties in in Colorado actually voted against recreational cannabis. So you can't find a recreational dispensary in those cities. And everyone thinks that we're the pot state. And we're like, actually, only 25 percent of the state has recreational marijuana. Yeah, it's like 13 counties or something in the entire state. That's it. Yeah. So when we think about that, it was like, if that's how many that are approving cannabis, like how many are going to be approving psilocybin? Because we know that even people that support cannabis, not all of them support psilocybin. And whether that's due to lack of education or many people actually that have even used mushrooms themselves still have negative perceptions about this bill. They'll say things like, oh, I had a bad trip. And no one should be able to do that because they'll have bad trips too. And then they'll make us all look bad or something like they have this negative perception. And so it's like, imagine if you had this one bad time with a brownie and you're like, no one should ever be able to use cannabis because I tripped that. I had a weird experience with a brownie. Like you're like, that's not a valid argument, but we still have, I think even stigma within our own community about these negative experiences. Like not everyone could handle that. And it's not, we're like, it's about education. It's about moderation. Again, anyone can abuse any substance, right? You can, you can use legal substance the wrong way. You can use prescription drugs the wrong way. You can use legal drugs the wrong way. But what we're talking about is that it should not be legal for anyone to be arrested for just simply possessing something that they can't kill themselves on. And for the most part, there's very little, like, there's almost like no violent crimes that happen while somebody's on uh, psilocybin. So it's not actually a harm to our society in any way. And if somebody is abusing psilocybin, um, they should be, you know, directed to addiction treatment centers or things like that, not necessarily jail, right? And so I think that this, this initiative is starting the journey and the conversation towards more compassionate treatment towards people that decide to use medicinal recreational drugs rather than looking for punishment and looking at that moral judgment that anyone that consumes a substance, either than alcohol or cigarettes, is a bad person that should go to jail. Because that's what it is right now. That's a conversation in America. If you do anything besides use alcohol or cigarettes, you're a bad person who's likely to do bad things, right? And again, we know that as humans, we are stressed out, we're lonely, and we're depressed. But, you know, we can abuse all the Prozac we want, the alcohol we want. But the second that we might choose to do something else, which actually might align better with our biochemistry, right? Like, again, there might be people that really respond to psilocybin, whether it's microdosing or whether it's enjoying it with a concert and they actually feel connected and feel alive again, right? Whereas they haven't for, you know, months. Adults should be able to choose what they want to do and what they want to put in their body, no matter what food it is, no matter what plant it is, et cetera. And I think that this movement, even no matter how small it is, is helping start start sparking basically a revolution for people to take back basically ownership of their own bodies. If you are not free, be to decide what you put in your own body. Are you really free? That is the truth of the day. That is for sure. The illusion of, of freedom because we can, yeah, we can buy whatever we want from Amazon, but that's not true freedom if we can't even, you know, expand our mind and soul the way we want to. <laughs> 
Um, well, I really enjoyed our conversation. I'm so glad that you joined me today. I, I definitely appreciate your time. I know that you're that you're really busy right now. You've got a lot a lot going on, not only with you know your book tour and your infused health and impact network, but also all of the other work you're doing with the different initiatives. And I mean, I don't want to call you a lobbyist, but it's kind of one of your hats that you're wearing because you are so intertwined with with policymaking. So we definitely appreciate all that you're doing for all of us to help free the weed and free our minds and, you know, and free the plant medicine. So we don't just keep demonizing plants, which is ridiculous, as we know. Well, it was such a joy uh, to talk. And I look forward to to reading your book is on my list. So we'll have to have a conversation afterwards. (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah. Anytime I like talking about psilocybin and cannabis. So after you read those chapters, we'll definitely have more conversations to have. Okay, perfect. Well, thank you so much. Thank you, Michelle. And thank you for listening to another episode of the Herb Walk podcast. We'll be back with another episode at a later date. Thank you. I don't know about you, but I am full, so full of information from that interview with Dr. Ross. Every time I think I know a lot about cannabis, then I talk to somebody like Dr. Michelle Ross. And I am once again reminded that I may know a lot about cannabis, but there is so much more to learn. And so I really appreciate Dr. Ross's time to share with us just a a little bit about the infinite possibilities that can come in the future with real cannabinoid research and also, you know, a little love behind the research. When I think about these conversations about, you know, plant medicine and and bringing cannabis into the fold of more of an allopathic model so we can have more effective cannabis research, I'm always a little protective, like, oh, I want to leave cannabis in, in the realm of herbal medicine and this more you know, like natural approach to to working with nature as our guide for health and healing. And, and I understand that needing research to make it more, I guess, more palatable for people who need our double blind, you know, placebo studies that America, you know, has as our standard for we can't say anything works unless we have this standard. So now we're talking about putting cannabis as in this standard of, of research and I get a little protective. I, I really want to keep cannabis in this like heartfelt space of natural healing and how I need to get over that a little bit and be more receptive to it becoming more mainstream. Because if we truly want to use cannabis as medicine and also just be able to use cannabis as recreation and as, as fun as is our right to do as adults, then I have to embrace this more allopathic and Western approach to working with cannabis. And although I do in my practice, you know, I understand the endocannabinoid system and the endocrine system and, you know, how olfaction and the terpenoid cannabinoid synergy really works within the body. And I I always refer to that when I do work clinically, but where I also go is just that heart space and our and my herbal head, which is just thinking that this is a plant that has evolved over thousands of years. And in the realm of cannabis, a lot of that due to our co-evolution with humanity, because it has been a cultivated crop for at least 10,000 years. So we have cultivated each other over, over centuries now, us and cannabis. This is just a little rambling about my, my love of herbal medicine and this little disdain I've had for Western medicine that 
is because there, I haven't known people like Dr. Michelle Ross. And now I'm like, yes, there are people like her out there who are rooting for us and rooting for the medicine and not rooting for profit, which is what big pharma does in these, in these research studies. So often it's to prove that their drug that they want to go make billions of dollars off is going to work. And so I want to keep cannabis in this space where it doesn't just get used and abused by big pharma. And so thank you, Dr. Ross, for being for being you and for being willing to be on the forefront of this and to be active and to speak out and also to do the hard work and to do the research and the things that like people like me, I'm just not going to do. So I totally appreciate you. For those of you who want to learn more about Dr. Ross, you can find her at infusedhealth.com. That's the best way to get in touch with her. If you want to have a private mentorship with her, and work with her clinically, or if you want to do one of her programs like the Cannabis and Motherhood program that she does through Infused Health. And that's an online platform, and she will have some live dates in specific cities as well. Thanks again for listening to another episode of The Herb Walk with Jessica Baker. I appreciate it. You can find me on my website, bakerbotanica.com, on Facebook, my business page is Jessica Baker LAC. That stands for licensed acupuncturist. So Jessica Baker LAC. Um, on Instagram, I am Baker underscore Botanica. I have a blog, the herb, uh, <laughs> the herb Walk, just like the podcast. It's my blog has the same name, um, but you can find that blog at jessicabaker.blog. As always, thanks for listening and thank you for being a lover of plant medicine.